This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of the word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful for your provision of your word for us. We live in a world where there are a multitude of ideas and thoughts and philosophies and religions, and yet you have revealed yourself to us with clarity. And Father, it is up to us, under the guidance and direction of God the Holy Spirit, to study your word and to apply it to our lives, to see our lives transform first and foremost because of our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior, who has who died as a substitute for us, paying our penalty on the cross that we might have eternal life. And now that we have this new life, we have to nourish it, we have to grow, we have to grow to maturity, and it is incumbent upon us to be responsive to all that Christ has done for us in terms of the way in which we follow him. Scripture teaches this under the concept of discipleship, becoming a student, becoming one who is well-trained by our uh, teacher, by our master, by the Lord, who instructs us through your word. And, Father, we pray that we might be willing to rise to the challenge, not just to be grateful for the fact that we have a destiny in heaven, but that we want to live our life well on this earth, serving you with that great desire that no matter what else is accomplished in our lives, the one thing that matters, the one thing that will last for eternity is how well we focus on our spiritual life, our spiritual growth, and and learning your word, applying your word, and serving you in every area of life. And we pray that you would challenge us in this direction today. In Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. We're looking at the issue of discipleship. And this really begins at this point. If we look at the structure of Matthew, Matthew chapter 4, we see that, Matthew, that, that Jesus begins to call his disciples. He has it chronologically called all of his disciples by the time he gathers them together to teach them and instruct them in the Sermon on the Mount, which was covered in Matthew chapters uh, 5 through 7. Starting in Matthew 8 and 9, we have almost a transition section where we learn about the words of Jesus, his teaching in Matthew 5 through 7, and then the works of Jesus in Matthew chapter 8. Uh, and nine. Now, as you read through this, we see that when we come to Matthew chapter 10, 
It almost comes out of chronological order. But remember, as I've said, Matthew is writing topically. He's not writing in chronological order. So he, he develops his themes uh, t- topically as he goes through these transitions. When we look at chapter 10, if you were to have a red-letter Bible, you would notice that almost every verse in Matthew chapter 10 like we have in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is in red. That tells you that Jesus, this is another discourse of Jesus. This is the second discourse that we have, and it is related to the training of the 12 disciples. In Matthew 10, 1 through 4, we are told by Matthew, and this is basically to remind us of what has already happened, And when he had called his twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. And then in verses 2 through 4, he lists the names of those disciples. And then starting in verse 5, he gives them specific commands and more, more training. So the structure here is important because what we find in Matthew 8 and 9 is that we have a collection of miracles uh, miracles of healing in chapter 8, verses 1 through uh, 17. And then there is a shift in topic to these two types of disciples that I focused on last time, the over-enthusiastic disciple and the disciple who is under-enthused. And then there are three miracles of power that are described. And then there's a little bit longer section related to uh, related to disciples. And then we have three more uh, miracles of, of restoration in chapter 9, uh, 9, verses 18 down through 30, 34. And then there's another conclusion that focuses on the need for workers in the harvest. And then that immediately transitions into a reminder that Jesus has called his disciples and he sends them out. In, with reference to the harvest. So we see in, in just in terms of this structure and the flow of Matthew's thought that what he's trying to point us to is that the, the miracles that Jesus performed entail a certain response on the part of the believer, and that is to recognize his authority and then to submit to his authority and to follow him as disciples. And so he intersperses those those three episodes with the disciples in order to build to his focal point, which is on the next in the next chapter in Matthew chapter ten on the role and ministry of the twelve disciples. Matthew chapter twelve, Matthew chapter eleven, and then we begin to see this increased opposition to Jesus as the Messiah, culminating in the claim by the Pharisees in Matthew chapter twelve that he's performing his miracles from the power of Beelzebul. So what we see here, just in terms of thinking about about the disciples and what he has said, is first of all that Matthew has already told us that Jesus has called the disciples, and that's back in chapter uh, chapter 4. The first disciples that Jesus called were Simon Peter and his brother Andrew. And let's just turn back there for just a second. We'll look at two passages related to the calling of the disciples in Matthew 4 and as well as in John chapter 1. In Matthew 4, verses 18 and following, we 
we read, Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee. So here's our slide with the map of the Sea of Galilee. He's walking by the Sea of Galilee up in the northwest quadrant of the sea. Here we see Capernaum, which is the town where Jesus moves. Uh, We've seen that already where he establishes his headquarters, as it were. By the time that happens, Peter is, is living in Capernaum. But we also learn that Peter is from uh, Beth Saida. This is another fishing village on almost due north uh, on the uh, on the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee, somewhere in this vicinity, and he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, "Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men." So here he gives the command that is the focal point of a disciple. Now, a disciple is, the word disciple means someone who is a learner, someone who is a student, someone who is a pupil of a particular teacher. In the ancient world, if someone is a, uh, a teacher, uh, whether, it is, whether it might be a rabbi, it might be a philosopher, that those who became their students who were committed to following their teaching were referred to as disciples. In the Bible, there are different groups of disciples that are mentioned. One group that we see are identified as disciples of the Pharisees. Another group is identified as disciples of Moses. Another group that's identified are the disciples of John the Baptist. And then we have those who are the disciples of Jesus. And so the term disciple is a general word referring to a student or follower of some teacher. It is not a word that is synonymous with being a Christian or with being a believer in Jesus Christ. We can all think of at least one of the 12 disciples who was not a believer, and that is Judas Iscariot. Of the 12 disciples, 11 were believers, one was not. So there's at least one example of someone who's a disciple but never accepted or trusted in Christ as Savior. You have other disciples who were simply uh, somewhat curious. Uh, They were interested in what Jesus had to say, but they were not really convinced that he was necessarily the king. Some of them may have been believers. Some of them may have not. Some of them may have trusted in him to begin with. And then, as we'll see later on in the parable of the soils, they fell away after they were initial believers and did not continue uh, in, in the faith. They were nevertheless saved. So you have some that were not believers, some that are simply curious, Others who are more than curious, they are convinced of Jesus' claims to be the Messiah, the King of Israel, and they follow him uh, even more. And then there's a final group that is fully committed to him, to following him and following out all of his commands. And these are the ones that are fully convinced of his messiahship as well as truly committed to follow him. The question, the implied challenge to each of us in this section dealing with disciples is what, where are we in, in this process? We need to ask ourselves two questions. First of all, what kind of disciple do you want to be? Jesus says, follow me. 
How do you understand that? What kind of a disciple do you want to be? Do you want to be someone who is fully committed to him or someone who says, well, I just want enough out of the Christian life to be able to have stability in my life and a measure of happiness? Or do you want to be someone who is fully committed to God's plan and purpose for your life in every dimension of of life, in every area of thought as well as practice? So the first question is, what kind of disciple do you want to be? The second question is, what kind of disciple are you? What kind of disciple are we at this present time? And for most of us, I would hope that we want to be a fully committed disciple on the one hand, but we recognize that too often we're not quite where we wish we were. And we need to figure out what the plan is to get from where we are to where we ought to be. If we want to be a mature, committed disciple and we're not there yet, we need to have a plan. How do we get from where we are to where we're, where God wants us? We have to, in order to do that, we have to uh, go through a process of change in our thinking. That change that really matters only comes from the Word of God. So we have to change our thinking. In the process, we will change our priorities. We will change our schedule. We may change our geographical location so that we can be personally involved in a local church. We live in a world today where there are fewer and fewer qualified local churches in the world. That is a sad reality. There are people, though, that get involved uh, around the country. They find some congregation somewhere where things are not uh, too bad. They do understand the gospel. They understand some other things, and they can get involved. But there, sadly, there are many places today, even in large metropolitan areas, where there may not be a single congregation anywhere where the Word of God is being taught as it should be taught. And I, th- I do believe that it is important. If that's where you live, then you need to make a plan to get you and your family to a place where you can be part of a local church, part of a local congregation. Sometimes I know of several people who listen regularly live stream where they have groups. That is a local church. You can have a local church, a local group, and because there are, you have 10, 15, 20, 25 people maybe that are involved in a live streaming local church, that's the best you can get right now. There are other people who are in jobs, for example, in the military or in different other kinds of careers where they, where they have to be wherever they are for a certain amount of time, and that's understandable. Thankfully, we have the technology through the Internet to live stream and to have uh, teaching available, but that's less than optimum. The picture in the New Testament is that we need to be involved in a local group uh, of believers. That's the context in which training takes place for the Christian life and for, for Christian service. So we need to think about that in terms of the decisions that we make. What kind of disciple uh, do we want to be? What kind are we? And what's our plan to get from where we are to becoming a spiritually mature believer where we are effectively serving the Lord? The One of the things that we have to understand is that it's not just about where we are right now. It's not just about 
going through the process that that we go through we sort of get in the habit of going to church and bible class and making that part of part of our christian life but we need to think in terms of pushing ourselves to a another level within the christian life and we need to understand what that means and that always means that there's more to do there's more that we can do depending on where we are right now in terms of our own spiritual growth and spiritual effectiveness. And so as we study this, this week and next week and thinking through what the, our Lord teaches about about discipleship, is are we willing to accept that challenge to, to be a disciple in terms of what uh, Matthew presents and in terms of what Jesus presents in the in the Gospels. So this sets the framework. Now, last time we saw two examples. Just briefly review these. The first example is of a disciple who comes, and he is uh, overly enthusiastic. He has seen the miracles. He's gotten tremendously excited about Jesus. He has trusted in Jesus as the Messiah, but he hasn't really come to understand what Jesus will teach in other parables the importance of counting the cost, that there is an, a, a re responsibility that is incumbent upon us if we're going to be a disciple, that there are responsibilities in terms of our own spiritual life and our own spiritual growth. And if we're going to say, yes, Lord, I will follow you, there may be things that are, that are involved in that, that that may be rather uncomfortable. And so we have this scribe, this individual scribe. As I pointed out last time, scribes are usually mentioned in a negative light in the Gospel of Matthew, but there are two passages in Matthew 13:52 and again in Matthew 23:34 where scribes are listed among disciples. So there are two examples there where the, where some of the disciples, some followers of Christ are identified as scribes. Now, what is going on here is this scribe says, says, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. So he's responding to that command to follow Jesus. And Jesus rather uh, abruptly says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, we know that Jesus had a permanent residence in Capernaum because we're told earlier in chapter 8 that he had moved to Capernaum and was dwelling there. He also had places during his itinerant ministry where he would stay with friends. For example, when he was down near Jerusalem, he would stay with Mary and Martha and Lazarus in Bethany, which is just outside of, of Jerusalem. And so there were times when he had a permanent place to live or a, or a comfortable place to stay, but there were many times when he was traveling when in his itinerant ministry where there was not a place to lodge, where they would just be camping out. It wouldn't be comfortable. It would be a little stressful. There would be some opposition. And so he's pointing out that, that things are not always as someone might hope. Here is Jesus, the king, king of the Jews, the promised Messiah, and they might get the impression that if I follow him, then I will get some glory, I will have have comfort, and I will have convenience, that things are going to go much better for me. And Jesus is pointing out that that's not necessarily true. So there may be deprivation. 
There may be suffering. There may be loss. There may be opposition and persecution that we face because we are committed to follow Christ in each and every way. We don't see a lot of persecution in this country, although I think that there are some storm clouds on the horizon in terms of our culture, that there's clearly been a target laid against Christians for a variety of beliefs that Christians hold, and we see more and more uh, things that happen in the culture that are opposing what Christians stand for. And so it seems very likely that perhaps in another decade or so that we will see churches under much more overt assault than we have today and and even in the workplace, that if you are taking a stand for Christian values, then you may be unwelcome as an employee at your place of work. And so we have to be prepared for that. And so Jesus tells this uh, over-enthusiastic disciple that there's a reality here, and that is that it may become very difficult to follow me. So it may be uncomfortable, and it may be inconvenient. The under-enthusiastic disciple, as I pointed out last time, uh, comes and he has an excuse. Jesus says, follow me, and he says, not right now. I've got some family responsibilities. Many times we can come up with what sounds like a legitimate excuse for not being able to go to Bible class on a regular basis, not being able to listen uh, to the Word on a regular basis. We have children. They have needs. We need to get them to soccer practice and piano lessons and dance lessons and this thing and that thing. And the traffic is terrible, and we can go on and on as to why we can't. But a good leader, someone who's really positive, doesn't just generate reasons why they can't. They focus on why they can. They figure out ways to overcome whatever obstacles there might be to growing to spiritual maturity and studying the Word. They know that's the priority, and they need to be involved. And one of the reasons that we're in this location is because uh, being on the Beltway, it has easy access from a wide area of West Houston, from Northwest Houston to Southwest Houston. You can get here in 30 or 35 minutes, and there's usually not a lot of traffic at on Tuesday nights or Thursday nights or Sunday morning, and so that's not an issue. But for a lot of people, they can come up with reasons, and I understand that, but I look back on my background. I look back on the number of people that I know who raised their, reared their children, bringing them to Bible class five or six nights a week. They still got them to their dance lessons. They still got them to their piano lessons. They still got them to their uh, football games or whatever it was they needed to do. They got them there and they made the priority in their family the Word of God. And so they understood that. Now, this man is coming up with an excuse, and it's based upon the commandment to honor your father and your mother. And he says, I've got to take care of burying my father. And I pointed this out last time that he probably is not talking about the immediate burial because under Jewish custom, this would take place very, very quickly. 
You had to be in the ground within 24 hours, and so if his father had just died, then he would have uh, already buried him immediately upon death. He would have been involved in all of the procedures, getting ready for that. Uh, after the immediate burial, then they would sit shiva for, for a week or so, and then they would continue that in what was called uh, shloshim, and they would this would go from anywhere from a few weeks to the end of a year, and what would take place is that the bodies would be buried, and they would be, uh, they weren't embalmed, but they would be wrapped in various uh, spices. And at the end of 12 years, when, when all of the flesh had decomposed and the skeletons were left, then they would be placed in bone boxes called ossuaries. And this is one of the burial chambers where you see several ossuaries discovered. And this is one of the more ornate ossuaries, which is the ossuary of Caiaphas, who was the high priest at the time, uh, at the time of Jesus. And so what the, um, this particular individual is saying is that I've got responsibilities. It's going to be at least a year before I'm available because I've got to take care of these other responsibilities. There were really two burials. There's a first burial in the burial chamber, and then at the end of the year when they would put the bones in the ossuary, that was considered a second burial. And so this would be what he is talking about. This fits the context of this particular passage. And now what Jesus is teaching us is a couple of things. First of all, that we need to count the cost of being a disciple, that it's not easy it may be difficult at times, and it may be uh, that it might cost us even our own life. A second thing that he's emphasizing is that we need to put our priority on following him and not be distracted by the everyday cares or responsibilities of life. This emphasizes that for a disciple, there are specific priorities, and the first priority is following Jesus exclusively. That doesn't mean you can't have your hobbies. It doesn't mean that you can't have a large family and deal with those responsibilities, but it means that you have to keep your priorities in focus, and that is that the spiritual welfare, your spiritual welfare, and the spiritual welfare of your family is the most important determinative decision that you should make, and that should govern all of your other other decisions. Then we shift to the to Matthew chapter nine verse nine, and we look at these uh, two examples that come up at the end of the uh, uh, reflection upon the miracles of power. When you see these miracles of power, Jesus. Number one, stilled the sea, stopped the storm. Second, he shows his power and authority over the uh, demons and angelic forces by casting the demons out of the uh, two uh, Gergesene demoniacs. And then he uh, heals a paralyzed man to demonstrate that he has the authority to forgive him of their sins. If he is who he claims to be, If he is the creator God who has authority over creation, authority over the angels and the demons, and and the authority to forgive sin, which only God can, then that puts an incumbent responsibility upon each and every person who believes that, and that is to follow him exclusively. So in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, 
We see Jesus, Matthew says that Jesus passed on from there, that is, and from being in Capernaum where he had uh, healed a paralyzed man. As he passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now, the word here that is used for tax collector is the Greek word talonis, and it and the Telonis in Capernaum would be responsible for the c- collection of a variety of taxes that had been levied by Herod Antipas, who is the tetrarch of Galilee, the ruler over Galilee, and is the son, one of the sons of um, Herod the Great. And so at this point, the Romans were not collecting taxes directly in uh, in Galilee, this was uh, done via uh, Herod Antipas, and so he was—he would have been considered a custom house official. And it's very likely that he, that in this location in Capernaum, let me go back to our previous map here. It's lo- Capernaum is located on a major uh, port on the Sea of Galilee major fishing commercial center. It's also located on a highway that would have come down from Damascus to the uh, north shore of the Sea of Galilee, then proceeded along the shore for three or four miles, and then headed off across the Esdralon Valley. This was called the Great Trunk Highway. And so there would have been a need to have various customs officials collecting taxes on from caravans that were moving through the area, as well as probably a customs house on the dock that would collect various taxes on the fish that were caught in the Sea of Galilee. And so the picture here is that this is what uh, what is going on with Matthew, that he is one of these uh, tax collectors, one of these custom house officials, and Jesus comes to him and calls him to follow him. Now, earlier when I didn't go to take us to John 1, but earlier we just talked about Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus initially calls uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John. I didn't want to take the time to go over to John chapter 1, but in John chapter 1, we see their initial meeting. So there's a distinction between Jesus' initial meeting with Andrew and Peter as described in, in John chapter 1, and when he comes back to them later on and calls them to be a disciple. We see that same pattern here. He, this isn't the first time he would have met Matthew. Uh, he would have probably met Matthew already. Matthew would have been in the crowds listening to him teach. Matthew would have all, would be a believer already. And so now Jesus is coming to him and he's ratcheting up uh, the uh, responsibility of Matthew and calls upon him to follow him. And immediately Matthew uh, arises and follows him. Now, this is remarkable because as a tax collector, he would have been considered by the Jews to be completely hopeless spiritually. He would have been considered spiritually unclean. Uh, tax collectors were classed among people uh, such as uh, prostitutes, uh, those who charged interest for loans, which was forbidden by, by the law, gamblers, thieves, dishonest herdsmen, and others. Uh, they were considered lawless, and they were all considered to be hopeless and excluded from all religious fellowship. 
Any money that he had was considered tainted and would not have been accepted by the temple. And so this man and other tax collectors would have sat completely outside of the, the sphere of influence of the religious leaders uh, in, in Israel. And so Jesus is setting himself apart by calling uh, a man of this class to be one of his disciples. So he calls him to be a disciple, and immediately he arose and followed Jesus. Now we're told in verse 10, it happened that as Jesus sat at the table in his house, so Matthew has invited others to come to his house. Uh, The his here in Matthew is rather ambiguous. It could refer to Jesus' house or Matthew's house, but from the parallel accounts in Mark and Luke, we know that Matthew hosted this banquet in his house. And so he is sitting there uh, in Matthew's house and many other tax collectors. This tells us that there were quite a few of this category in Capernaum, because, and that would indicate that it was a significant commercial center. Uh, many tax collectors and sinners who came. Now, sinners refers to a different class. This is generally a term which referred to the uh, everyday common laborer and worker in, in uh, Israel who, that did not, that was not involved religiously, did not observe the scribal uh, laws or the laws of the Pharisees or the Sadducees, and so they were just considered hopeless and helpless and without any hope of salvation. And it is to these people that Jesus uh, ministers. So he see there are many tax collectors and sinners who came and sat down with him and his disciples. So the term disciples here would refer to the twelve. In verse 11, the Pharisees watch this in their self-righteous legalism because this is completely outside of anything that they would do, anything that they would approve of, anything that they would accept, because this is a class of person that was totally divorced from God, and in their view they were they were helpless. There would could be no salvation for this type. Now I pointed out earlier that according to the the religious thinking of the day, if the somebody appeared on the scene claiming to be the Messiah, that the first thing that Pharisees would do would be to send a an investigative team to observe what the uh, claimant to be the Messiah was doing. They wouldn't interrogate him. They wouldn't talk to him. They would just observe it. And that is what we see earlier in the uh, in the earlier miracles. They are coming to observe him, and they don't talk directly to Jesus. So this fits that same uh, same uh, inter- uh, same example here in Matthew chapter thirteen. That's when we see the interrogation of Jesus in reference to his claims to be the Messiah. What we see here is the Pharisees are outside of the house. They would not be caught uh, inside the house with these tax collectors and sinners. They're outside, and they're observing this. And they're so instead of asking Jesus, that's not their role at this point. They're simply observing, but they ask his disciples. So it fits that same scenario. They say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, Jesus overhears them. This may be an example of his omniscience. It's probably there. It's not a large area. And he uh, heard what they said. And he replies by saying, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. 
Now, there's several examples in the ancient world where there have been different uh, different people who have uttered proverbs that are similar to this, that a physician's responsibility is to go to the sick and not just to deal with those who are, are well. And that's the point that he is making, is that the people, the sinners, the tax collectors, those who are uh, apart from God, those who are not blinded by their own self-righteousness are the ones that need grace and the ones that need salvation. And so he has come to those who will respond to the grace offer and not those who, out of their self-righteousness, will reject the offer of salvation. And so Jesus then directs them to go to the Scriptures and to learn. And it is in this uh, command when he says in verse 13 to go and learn this was a typical uh, phrase an idiom in uh, rabbinic thought to go to the scriptures and study the scriptures and he quotes from Hosea chapter 6 verse 6 just one line he says I which is a reference to God I desire mercy and not sacrifice here's Hosea 6 6 for I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Again and again in the Old Testament, there is this indictment of the religious and legalistic leaders, even in Israel in the Old Testament, that put ritual observance over any kind of reality in the individual relationship of the believer with God. And so they have sacrificed grace and they have sacrificed compassion on the altar of ritual observance. They are more concerned about maintaining the letter of the law than understanding the underlying emphasis on compassion and grace. And so what we see in this particular episode is that Jesus is emphasizing two things that must be uh, present in the life of a disciple. Number one, he must be grace-oriented. The disciple must come to understand that our relationship with God is not based on works. It's not based on ritual. It's not based on any set of standard of externals that can be counterfeited. It is based upon an internal understanding that our relationship with God is not based on who we are, what we've done. It's not based on our credentials. It's not based on our success. It's not based on on what whatever details of life uh, we may have. It is based exclusively upon the work of Christ on the cross. And so not only is our salvation based upon dependence upon God's grace, but so is our spiritual life. And consequently, we're going to deal with people not on the basis of who they are, but on the basis of who God is and what Christ did on the cross. There are many people who are not socially acceptable. There are many people who are uh, not very lovable. That are There are people who are not... Uh, politically acceptable. There are people who are not socially acceptable. But we as believers are to reach out to every category of person to uh, bring them the gospel. No matter what their background may be, no matter what kind of unbeliever they are, they all stand in need of the grace of God. 
So the first thing that is that we see emphasized in this episode is the importance of grace orientation, and secondly, what develops from it, which is service to God. Service to God means serving those who are undeserving, those who are sinners, those who are in rebellion against God, those who are not already acceptable by us according to whatever social standards we might have. We are to focus on them as those who are desperately in need of the grace of God. Then we move on to the next section, which focuses on this question from the disciples of John the Baptist. Notice in verse 14 it states, Then the disciples of John came. So this is one of those other categories of disciples. These were those who had followed John the Baptist. And remember, Peter and Andrew and James and John were also uh, disciples of John the Baptist until John the Baptist baptized Jesus in the Jordan. And then when John the Baptist identified Jesus as the one who was to come, the Messiah, then they began to follow Jesus when Jesus called them to follow him. So they come to Jesus and say, why... Why do we, that is, we as the disciples of John, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? So they've observed something, that there is a distinction in the behavior of the disciples of John and the, and the Pharisees. Now, they're not pointing out something that's legalistic. Fasting was something that is not commanded in the Scripture, but it was evidently practiced at various times. Fasting, I find today, is is uh, often misunderstood and treated as if it's something that has almost a magical power. That if we fast, that that somehow impresses God with uh, with whatever we're bringing to Him in prayer, and He will necessarily respond and answer it. We sometimes I read about churches that will have a fast. Uh, it's a coffee fast or it's a caffeine fast, or it's a dessert fast. They, they don't understand the concept. In the ancient world, eating was a time-consuming proposition, the preparation of food. If any of you grew up on a farm and you were responsible for getting up in the morning and going out and getting collecting the eggs or uh, catching the uh, rooster or hen that was going to uh, be prepared for the noon meal or for dinner, then you have some comprehension of this. It takes time. It's not just going to the grocery store and picking up an already prepared meal or going to McDonald's or some other fast food restaurant where everything's laid out and all you have to do is come home and microwave it. You would have to go out and slaughter uh, the animal, whether it was a chicken or a lamb or, uh, or a cow, whatever it might be, uh, you would have to milk the cow to get all your own milk. You would have to go out and work in the uh, kitchen garden all of the time in order to keep the weeds out. And it took a lot of time to prepare food. And so if you were going to dedicate time to really bring prayer before God, then it would have to take time away from your normal daily routine. And you spend a lot of time in food preparation and in cleanup so that you, you know, on top of the food preparation, you have to go out and chop the wood or do whatever you have to do to gather fuel to burn in the fire. All of this takes a tremendous amount of time. So rather than doing all of that, you're going to pray. 
Today, it takes five minutes to prepare something to eat, so it doesn't consume a tremendous amount of time. And so this idea of fasting today is, just loses the whole uh, situation that occurred in the, in the ancient world. And so that, but, but fasting had taken on sort of a legalistic, ascetic value as well. This would be more true of the, of the Pharisees than it was of John's uh, disciples. But fasting was considered normative in terms of emphasizing how, uh, how important you felt your prayer was, your prayer requests were. So these disciples come and they say, the Pharisees fast often for whatever reason they have. We as John's disciples fast often for different, which would be for different reasons. And how come your disciples don't fast? And Jesus then said to them, verse 15, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? He's referring to himself as the bridegroom. Now, this is an image that will develop through several parables. Jesus is the bridegroom. What we learn is the bride of Christ is the church. So Jesus is often uses this marriage illustration and analogy to refer to himself as the bridegroom and the idea of a wedding. And as the wedding approaches, there is a feast to celebrate uh, the marriage union between the uh, bride and the groom. And so in this first illustration, Jesus is saying the bridegroom is now with us. They understand that, and so it's a time for celebration. But there will be a time when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and that's one of the first hints we have in the Gospels of Jesus' rejection and crucifixion, that there will be a time when the bridegroom is taken from them, then they will fast. And he's simply making an observation that at that point there will be sorrow and sadness in contrast to the joy at having the Messiah in their presence. He then uses two more illustrations to focus on on the significance of the message of the kingdom. The first is an example related to uh, clothing, that you have a piece of, he says, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. So if you have a garment and it has been washed many times, it has shrunk, and now it, it it's not going to shrink anymore. But if you were to take a unshrunk or a piece of cloth that wasn't pre-shrunk and you were to patch that initial garment, then the next time you washed it, that new piece of unshrunk cloth would tighten up and it would uh, cause harm or damage uh, to the original garment, and it could cause the rip that you are repairing to become worse. What he's emphasizing here is something new is taking place, and so that which is old is not going to fit the new scenario, and the new scenario is, of course, what? The coming of the kingdom. And he says the same thing about putting new wine into old wineskins. Wineskins were made out of leather. Over the course of time, uh, the leather would become more dry and brittle. It would still hold the original wine, but then if you put new wine in it, even though it had already been in the barrels and the first stage of fermentation had taken place, 
when you put it into the wineskins, there would still be some more fermentation that would take place. The gases that develop during that stage of fermentation would expand, and the leather would not be as supple as it would was when it was new, and so it would cause a rip to occur in those wineskins. And so Jesus is saying, nor do they put new wine into old wineskins. What he's illustrating here is in terms of the question about fasting, I think is that fasting is something that is taking place and has been part of the normative procedure uh, in the spiritual life of Israel up to this point, but there's something new coming. And so we're not going to be operating in the future according to the same standards that we've been operating on. It's, again, one of the first times he is hinting to the fact that a dispensational change is about to take place. Something new is going to uh, come into being. So he's emphasizing the fact that, that in terms of discipleship, that the disciple needs to be focused on what God is doing in terms of the plan of the ages. And then we come to the last section, the last section which ties them all together and sets the stage for chapter 10. And let's turn over to Matthew 9, 36 to 38. Here we see Jesus looking upon the crowds, the multitude, and he says, the text says that he's moved with compassion, He understands the fact that they're sinners. He understands the fact that they are fallen. He understands all of the heartache and problems that we as human beings face in a fallen world, and especially in the masses of Israel because they no longer have religious leaders that are leading them according to the law of Moses. And there have been many, uh, many passages in the, uh, in the prophets, where the Israel's condemned for a lack of having uh, shepherds that are following God. In Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 1 through 16, uh, Israel is presented as sheep who are oppressed and scattered because of the failure of the shepherds in Israel. And this also uh, echoes various other passages where, for example, in 1 Kings 22, 17 and following, the prophet Micaiah represents Israel as a, as a, a flock of sheep that are scattered on the mountains and they have no shepherd. Uh, also passages such as Zechariah 10, verses 2 through 3, indicates a lack of prophetic leadership for the sheep of Israel. In Zechariah 13, 7, uh, talks about the loss of the messianic shepherd that leads to the scattering of the sheep. All of this is the background for understanding what Jesus is saying here, that they are weary and scattered. They have no one to lead them. They have no one to feed them. That's the function of a shepherd, is to lead and feed spiritually. But they don't have that, so they are scattered. What do they need? They need someone to step into that gap. Well, he is the chief shepherd who is presenting himself as the leader of Israel, who is the only one who can feed them the truth. And consequently, his disciples fit into that pattern. And so he's laying the groundwork here that in order to solve the problem of leaderless, shepherdless people who are weary and scattered, they need workers. And so he says in verse 37, the harvest truly is plentiful, 
but the laborers are few. He, it's a call to be a disciple, to step to the plate, and to be involved in leadership and Christian service. It says the laborers are few. Being involved in that process of training disciples and leaders for the next generation. And he says, therefore, and at this point, he's not telling them to do anything. That comes in the next chapter. At this point, he's saying, this is what you need to be praying for now, is that the Lord of the harvest will send out laborers for the harvest. This is similar to what Jesus said to the woman at the well and to the disciples in the incident of the woman at the well in John 4, 35 to 38. He says, do you not say that there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. They are already white for harvest. So in both of these passages, he's saying there are many people out here who are ready to respond to the gospel, but there's no spiritual leadership. So the harvest here is talking about the harvest of the saved, giving them the gospel so that they will respond. In John 4.36, talking about the workers of the harvest, he says, he who reaps receives wages. Now, this is not talking about salvation or getting saved. This is talking about rewards. Salvation is free, but rewards are earned. And he says, he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life. This is talking about the quality of life, and it's talking about rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. It's not talking about getting into heaven but that quality of life for the believer now. He who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows, that is, he who presents the gospel, and he who reaps, that is, the one who comes along and maybe gives the gospel for the 15th time and the person responds, he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. He's talking to his disciples. Others have labored, and you have entered into their laborers. The point in both passages is that the call and requirement and responsibility of a disciple is to be involved in the process of what Matthew quotes Jesus is saying in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, that is to make disciples. And we can do that in many different ways. It's not just the role of a pastor. It can be the role of a parent. It can be the role of a Sunday school teacher, a prep school teacher. It can be the role of someone working with a child evangelism fellowship group. It can be the role of someone working with a vacation Bible school. There are many different ways in which we come together to serve in that overarching goal of making disciples. We have many people in this congregation who step forward and volunteer in many, many different ways to carry out that ministry. And we're always in need of, of different ones to step forward. That's part of being, uh, that's, that's part of being in this process and, and being involved. And it all points to that goal of being a disciple. Now the question that we each need to ask almost on a daily basis is what kind of a disciple do I want to be? And what kind of a disciple am I? What's the difference between those two? And what am I doing to further my own discipleship and becoming a more committed and mature student of the Lord Jesus Christ? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be reminded of our priority as believers, that we are to focus on our training 
We are to focus on our spiritual growth, that everything else is secondary as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that we aren't involved in many other areas in life, but it does mean that we, uh, that we arrange our schedules and our priorities to focus on that which counts for eternity. Father, we pray that if there's anyone who's listening who is not sure of their salvation or if they're uncertain of their eternal destiny. The issue at salvation is not discipleship. The issue at salvation is trusting in Christ as Savior. Jesus paid the penalty for all of our sins. And so salvation is free. Salvation does not involve any cost on our part. Salvation is that which is freely provided for us as Jesus died on the cross and paid the penalty for our sins. Now, All you need to do is to trust in him, and at the instant that you trust in him, you have eternal life, which can never, ever be taken from you. Father, we pray that you would drive this message home to each of us, reminding us of our your ultimate purpose for our lives and this life in this world, that we are to represent you as ambassadors for Christ, growing to spiritual maturity. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.